1 John chapter 3 picks back up uh, for where we left off before Palm Sunday. As we get into this, I, I, I want to explain a, a new term that I learned this week. I don't often uh, kind of bring things in, but I, I learned a term this week that I think is really insightful and helpful for what we're about to look at, for what we're about to go through. It's a relationship term that hopefully not many of you are employing, okay? It's called cushioning. Anybody in here cushioning? Want to raise your hand? We'll talk afterwards. Okay. We'll see why in just a second. So cushioning, basically you're invested in a relationship. You have a monogamous relationship with someone, and then you have all these side relationships. You just try and maintain status quo on. So if this main relationship craps out, I've still got my, my backup, okay? So this is cushioning. And we look at that and we say, well, that's not a very healthy way to go about having a relationship. That's not a very healthy way to, to really be committed to somebody. But I want you to know something. We effectively do this in Christianity. Now, the piece John puts forward here in, in, in verses 4 through 10 gives us one of two choices. We either pursue righteousness or we pursue sinfulness. Now, this is difficult for us, right? Because what we do is we like to pursue righteousness, but not just, just overbearingly, because we like to just have this kind of sinfulness over here that's just it's kind of warm. It's just like eating a bunch of chocolate when you're upset, or it's eating something really fatty when you're upset. Don't judge. I eat my feelings. Right? John gives us this really clear, precise, difficult word. We have one of two choices in the Christian life. We could pursue righteousness, or you can pursue sinfulness. Let me read 4 through 10 and we'll walk through it together. John writing, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him, speaking of Jesus, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Then he hits us with this incredibly difficult word. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John opens up and, and, and recognizes that John is writing to a community that has experienced tremendous fracture. And so this church had met, the church had gathered for a number of years, and then all of a sudden they looked up one day and a significant number from their body had left. They departed, they'd gone elsewhere. And so they look around, and, and they're wondering in their heart, they're asking this question, are they right and we're wrong? Are they right and we're wrong? Should we have left with them? Is the message they're communicating back to us right? What, what's going on? What's true and what's false? And, and a lot of the message that this group is communicating back to the church is that sin is not real. Sin either doesn't exist, it has no effect in you, God doesn't look at your sin and ultimately care one uh, one bit. He's not affected by your sin. And so if God's ultimately not affected by my sin, then no matter what I do, God's just like, that's okay, you're good, you just go with it. Then my life can be whatever I want it to be. I can pursue whatever course I want to pursue. 
And so John hits them with this truth that is incredibly impactful and corrective to what they've been hearing. Now look what he says. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And so we hear this, and, and most of us have the idea that, that sin is just not engaging in something or just doing the wrong thing. But John gets in, and he offers this corrective, and he says, look, you have to understand this. Sin is lawlessness. And what does lawlessness look like? Lawlessness is rebellion. Now, we can be incredibly rebellious and still do the right thing for everybody to see, right? Rebellion kind of begins in our hearts. It's when we reject and we move to disobey. Rebellion is this idea that we, in some sense, know what God desires for us to do, but we give no care and we give no careful consideration to engaging carefully in the pursuit of all those things God has set before us. And so we read his word, we hear sermons, we hear encouraging words from those around us, and what do we do? We disregard it. We cast it off. Our hearts tend to want to be rebellious. Our hearts tend to want to be rebellious. Now, some of us in this room, our particular problems are are most well understood within the context of the first chapter of John, of 1 John. Within the first chapter of 1 John, we found people who said, look, I don't sin. I don't sin. I just kind of like when I was growing up, I thought my parents never argued because they only ever argued behind closed doors. So when Valerie and I got married, and I said, we shouldn't argue. My parents never argued. And then I told my mom, I said, man, I told Valerie, like, we don't need to argue. Y'all never argued. She said, whoa, whoa. I've been married over 30 years to your father. We argue lots. Just never in front of you. It was devastating for me to hear this. What do you mean you argue? Well, all of us in the same vein, that, that delusion that would in- significantly impact us, some of us in here, we say, like, sin's not an issue for me. I don't sin. Sin's not an issue for me. I don't sin. I see sin in other people, and I'd love to tell you about some of their sin. But for me personally, there is no sin. There's no sin problem for me. If this is where you are, if this is your issue, Romans 3.23 and other places, other verses, really significantly impact us. They say this. All of us have sinned. All of us have sinned. The Bible puts it this way. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You, friend, or a sinner. I'm a sinner. Now, I didn't put that on my resume, and I tried to conceal it to a certain degree, but all of us engage in sin. We all have a sin problem. But what it seems that John is talking about is this sin that has this overriding principle in your life. It is pulling you to being fully engaged in following sin. You see, we can either pursue righteousness, or we can pursue sinfulness. Now look what he says God did to affect sin. Verse 5, he says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming, in John chapter 1 and verse 29, he has these amazing words. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. This amazing word. He sees Jesus coming upon him. He's baptizing people in his word. His description of Jesus is, Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. 
So we recognize that you and I have sin in us, that there is this temptation to allow sin to become the overriding principle and trajectory and leaning of our hearts. And then we hear that Jesus came to take away sins. You and I have this relief, this freedom, not on the basis that we finally learned how to be good, but on the basis that Jesus was the goodness that we could never attain to. Do you see how significant that is? So we read in this that he appeared in order to take away sins. He removed from us the penalty and the punishment of sin. Jesus did this. He came and he did this. Now, he doesn't do this in such a way as to say, it doesn't matter how terrible Jesse is, how terrible Justin is, how terrible Jay is, how terrible Sally is, how terrible Linda is. It just, God's just going to look at them and say, they're fine. I'm just going to wipe those things away. It's like taking a baby who has pooped himself. You wipe it, you put a new diaper on there, and you just send them back in and say, he's fine. He's okay now. He will never poop again, right? You can tell I have a baby at home. God doesn't just dismiss our sin and wipe it away and send us back out there. The look of this, the the feel of this is that he has completely wiped away our sin. John describes it this way in 1 John 2, 2, speaking of Jesus. He said he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for those of the entire world. So you and I, on the basis of our sin, we have the right penalty and punishment of God coming towards us. The Bible speaks of this as the wrath of God coming towards us because our sin has been an affront and a violation of God's perfect character and law. And because this wrath is coming towards us, something has to be done about it. Some penalty has to be paid for this wrath. And this is what the Bible figures. This is what the Bible says. It says that Jesus stood in the middle and that the wrath of God was poured out on him. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. But what does the latter part of 1 John say right here? It says he took away our sins. He took away our sins, and so the wrath of God is poured out on him, and we recognize, too, that in him there is no sin. You see, the reason that Jesus was able to stand in and to remove your sins is because Jesus himself is sinless. Even in taking the penalty and the punishment for your sins, he is not sullied, he is not marred, he does not become sinful. This is the great love and depths this God of ours goes to to restore us in unity and relationship with him. So on the basis of this, John keeps on going. Look at verse six. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So he gives us this kind of contrasting understanding of here. If you are a Christian... If you would say that you have been identified with Jesus, you have surrendered your life to him, you recognize that you are sinful, you recognize that you are far removed from God, and you ask him to come near you to forgive you your sins, you recognize that Jesus died, that he entered into the grave for three days, and that God resurrected him, and he raised him to new heights. If this is the echo of your heart, if this is the testimony of how you live your life, if this is where you would say you are, then you are abiding in him. Abiding is resting. Abiding is trusting. I think there's this mistaken assumption. We get into the middle of this and we say abiding, being with him, is doing everything right all the time. Doing everything right all the time. Man, that is exhausting. That is exhausting. 
It's like stepping on a treadmill and you get on there and somebody else's hand is on the elevation and somebody else's hand is on the speed. They keep cranking up the speed and they keep cranking up the speed and they keep cranking up the elevation. So right about the time we feel like our feet are finally underneath us, somebody reaches over and they begin to hit that button again and again and again. And I don't know how many of you have, have fallen on a treadmill, but it is super painful and, and really awkward for other people to watch, right? Because unlike falling outside for the pavement has stopped, you fall on a treadmill and that pavement just keeps on beating you. Many of us beat ourselves with this same idea in our quest to abide with God and do so in our own strength and us to maintain that relationship, we allow our failures to beat us over and over and over again. We allow our shortcomings to beat us over and over and over again. You are abiding in him because he is holding you in this relationship through faith. You are abiding in him because he is safekeeping your salvation. And he gives us this deal. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Don't read this and say, no one who abides in him sins. We are all sinners. It is our recognition of our sinfulness that gives us a need, that necessitates our need for God. Each of us are sinners, and we're sinners in our own different ways, right? But in the midst of this, in the midst of resting in him, sin will never become the overarching identity of who I am. Sin for the Christian will never become the overarching identity of who you are. And there's incredible freedom in that. There's incredible release in that. So when we find ourselves in the midst of sin, we find ourselves in sin, be it sexual, be it financial, be it internal, be it just this, this preoccupation with being good. When we find ourselves in the midst of this and there's some corrective from the word, from the Holy Spirit, from somebody that comes into us and just says, man, you're being stupid, you gotta stop it. For the Christian, there's a sense of brokenness. There's a sense of humility that drives us back to dependence upon him. It's not anger and being caught and being discovered. There is no place for shame in this. The response of shame is the one the enemy would have you to respond with. Why? Because that keeps you isolated, that keeps you alone, and that keeps you vulnerable. Christian, if you're caught up in the midst of sin, you and your wife's relationship is fractured, you're single, your relationship with God is just anemic. You're a liar, you're stealing putting adultery in your heart, whatever it is, sin thrives in solitude. Thrives in solitude. Thrives in solitude. Thrives in secrecy. Bring it into the light. Allow those people around you who are passionately pursuing Jesus to be a balm and a healing to you. Share your sin with those around you so that it might help you to walk in the light. And look what he keeps, go, keeps with. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So we recognize that those of us who are resting and trusting in Jesus, sin will never become the overarching description of kind of who we are and how we live our lives. And then he says, no, for those of you who you just, man, sin is who you are. It is your base identity. You find yourself constantly enmeshed in sin, periodic, episodic attempts at being good, but sin is really kind of who you are. It says you've neither seen him nor known him. You've neither seen him nor known him. We recognize that seeing God, knowing God, this experience of him is incredibly transformative. 
Paul writes it this way in Romans 10. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In confession, repentance. In salvation, we are justified. We are made holy before God. What is dead is made alive. He takes us from being slaves to sin, and he makes us slaves to righteousness. He makes our dead heart begin to beat and have desires for holiness, for righteousness. For some of us, we recognize that, man, you might have been in church 60, 70, 80, nobody 90, 90 years. And all you've really done is been episodically good. But you have never had a true encounter with the living God. You've been good, and you've kept your sin quiet, and you've kept your sin hidden. What God calls for you to do is to respond to the living God, to confess your sins to this living God that he might transform you from this pursuit of goodness to imputed righteousness, that God would make you holy, righteous, justified, and welcomed, and that from the embrace of that security, then you begin to walk out all the things of salvation from there. This is a heavy message, right? This is a heavy message to receive. You guys are sitting there. There's not just a tremendous amount of laughter going on. And so you can imagine being those first people to receive it. They're like, dang, can we take it like a one function break? I need to go outside and say, oh, man, I don't know. Like I thought my wife was saved, but man, I'm reading this. I'm pretty sure she's not now. Which explains a lot about dinner last night, right? And so we get into the middle of this, and we hear this, and, and it is heavy at times. And, and, but look what John does in the midst of this, in the midst of the heaviness of this, and asking us to evaluate our own hearts. He leans back in, and he says, little children. So he calls them back in. He says, there's nothing deficient in you. This episodic turn towards rebellion is not who you are. Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Recognize our enemy wants nothing more than to sideline each and every one of us, to keep our personal sin secret, to keep it quiet, to keep it hidden, so that it might ruin, it might devastate not only our lives, but the lives of everyone we touch when our private sin finally becomes publicly known. So he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. How? As he is righteous. Everyone who practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. How then have we been made righteous? Peter writes it this way. Peter writes it this way in 1 Peter 2, 24. He says, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is by his wounds that we have been made whole, that we have been healed. So he writes to us in the midst of this, and he says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. And we found in, in 1 John 1, 5, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So how then do we pursue, how then do we practice righteousness? You see, we practice righteousness by spending time with Jesus. We spend time with Jesus, and it is making us righteous. He is transforming our desires. He is transforming our hearts. 
It's not this rubric, this list of, I need to do this, not do this. I need to do this, not do this. Oh, certainly don't need what she's doing over there. Oh, I need to do more of what he's doing over there. We spend time with Jesus, and he is daily, moment by moment, changing our hearts and changing our heart's desires. And the picture of righteousness, check this. The picture of righteousness that you pursue is not your saintly grandmother. That is anemic righteousness. What we observe in most of the people around us is goodness, mercy, and compassion. Those are the things we want to emulate. Those are the things we want to follow, right? So we see somebody who's a, just, I mean, just a really solid guy who's just an amazing woman, and we see attributes of their life, and we're like, yes, I want that. I want that in my life. This is what I want. This is how I want to live. And so we begin to kind of craft our life and move our life in the direction so that someday our lives will be like their lives. If you place your intensity and focus on those around you, they will ultimately disappoint. You can run this race and should run this race with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and they can be an encouragement to you. But the righteousness we pursue, it's like nothing we've ever seen. It's like nothing we've ever observed. The righteousness we pursue is Jesus's righteousness. And pursuing his righteousness and spending time with him and allowing the intensity and focus of our heart to be upon Jesus is incredibly transformative. And it changes every facet of who we are. Now, what if we don't pursue righteousness? What if we don't pursue righteousness? What if we just find ourselves going with the flow, the ebb and flow of life? Well, the Bible reads and says it this way. You either pursue righteousness or you pursue sinfulness. So turning to that, John says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So he goes back to this argument from the beginning. He says that in the garden you have perfection. You have God with humanity. And they're dwelling in perfect communion and harmony. And then what happens? The enemy, the devil, saunters up to Eve and says, Yo, girl, what's cooking? And she's like, well, I don't know. That apple looks pretty tasty. He's like, I'm saying, that apple is so good. You need to have some of that. Your life, I... Like, it looks pretty good, right? You're naked. You're not getting splinters. It's awesome. There's no chafing. But that apple is amazing. And God's been keeping it from you. You should really, you should really have some of that in your husband over there with kind of this empty, vacant look in his eyes. You should bring him along. He should have some of that too. It's transformative. It'll change everything about who you are and what you know. It's the only true thing he said. It would change everything. All of humanity would fall on the basis of following a lie instead of following the truth. And those of us who make a practice of sinning, the overarching desire of your life is something other than a pursuit of Jesus. Ultimately, we're pursuing the path of the father of lies. We are pursuing the course of the devil. This idea of this practice of sinning. We make it who we are. We make it what we're about. We're pursuing goodness. We're pursuing kindness. We're pursuing charity instead of pursuing Jesus. And I can tell you this, Christian, 
This is always where the enemy wants you to go. You may be saved, but he can render you completely ineffective by placing your focus and desire on something other than pursuing Jesus passionately. We can pursue good things and completely miss Jesus. And look at it, he goes again with this idea of his appearing, Jesus' appearing. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Paul, writing in Romans, says that we are enslaved to sin prior to salvation. And that God comes in and he removes those chains. But some of us, we like the sense of chains, right? In chains, we have responsibilities of things we are able to do, things we are able to metric. But he goes in, he says, you need to understand this. The, the Son of God appeared to destroy those chains, to destroy that bondage and, bondage. and no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for two reasons. For two reasons, he says, one, for the seed of God abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. And number two, just goes back to the fact that you've been born of God. Anybody in here make themselves born? Like your mom said, I remember the day you made yourself be born. It was super terrifying, right? Alien, the movie Alien. That's the only thing I can ever think that made itself be born. Right. <clears throat> That's my remembrance of watching that movie at far too young of age. It's the only thing ever. That was bad. That was bad. All right, then, bow your heads, let's pray. <clears throat> no one ever made themselves be born. We recognize that it is the compassionate work of God in our hearts calling us to himself. And our response, our desire to respond is something he put in there. And so if you have this sense that you want to follow Jesus, that's God putting that in your heart. If you have the sense that you don't want to sin, that's God calling you and wooing you to follow him. If you have the sense that you don't want to wrestle with this sin, that's God's compassion is extending its hand and calling you and beckoning you, come. See, God's seed abides in those who are Christians. God's seed abides in us. His Holy Spirit abides in us. And, in us. and according to John 16, 13, his Holy Spirit is, is leading us in paths of truth. It is convicting us concerning sin and righteousness. And so when we encounter situations, his Holy Spirit is speaking to us. He's bringing verses to mind. He's telling us, don't do this or do this. Christian, the reason you cannot keep on sinning, the reason you can't remain happy in sin and happy in rebellion, because to do so is completely contradictory to who he has made you to be. He has made you to bear his image. He has made you to be an ambassador of reconciliation. He has made you to display the gospel, its graciousness. He has made your marriage to display the gospel. And the reason we cannot keep on sinning is because his seed is implanted in us. God is working you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Look at how he finishes this. So I want to look, still look at the next moment or two. He gives us this vision test. He says, by this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Now everybody's looking around right now saying, child of the devil, child of, ooh, child of the devil. But feels, but some of you are. 
So he's looking around and he says, by this it is evident, it is clearly able to be seen who are children of God and who are children of the devil. And so we find ourselves, well, like, I want to know, am I a child of God? Look what he does. He gives us two, two cases to probe our hearts. He says, whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God. If you don't pursue righteousness, according to this, you're not of God. The second one, he comes back, he says, nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. Let's start with the second work back to the first. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, John was really talking about love, and Jesse will talk about this more next week. He says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him there's no cause for stumbling. But listen to this. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. He walks in the darkness. He doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. To hate is to refuse to extend love. This is how we define love and how we defined hate a few weeks ago. To hate is not to extend love. Now we have those in our life who are hard to love. You're a parent of a rebellious child. You're divorced and you think of your spouse, your former spouse, and just your heart burns with anger and animosity towards them. This is not how God would have you to respond. Wrestling with sin and being bested, overcome by sin, are two very different things. It is okay for us to struggle with this application. And that's what John is calling us to. John doesn't call us to get to verse 10 and be like, I'm good, who's going to Cracker Barrel, right? He calls it us to look at verse 10 and really begin to ask this very difficult question in our hearts, with what degree and intensity am I following Jesus? With what degree and intensity am I following him? Nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. Some of us, the corrective for us, is to recognize we have been withholding love, we have been withholding forgiveness of those in our lives. Some of us, it's ourselves, man. We don't love ourselves. We don't love those around us. So this word of God hits us at this deep place of vulnerability. I don't want to love them. But there it is. Calling us to submit ourselves once again to him calling us to do that which we are incapable, calling on us once again to rely on him to help us to do this. Now look at the other one. This is where we'll finish. Nor is the one who does not practice righteousness. So we look at this and instantly most of our minds go to this way of how can I practice righteousness? Oh, I know how I can do this. I can stop yelling at people. Number one, I'm going to stop yelling at people. Like tomorrow, I'm not going to yell at people. Okay. Just had to get it out of the way because tomorrow I can't do that. Right? So we begin to get this list of things. I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to drink till I pass out anymore. I'm just, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to make fun of people anymore. I'm not going to cheat on my wife anymore. I'm not going to look at pornography anymore. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do drugs anymore. I'm not going to cheat anymore. I'm not going to lie anymore. And so it's all this list of things we're not going to do anymore. And then we switch over and like, now on the positive side, I'm going to read my Bible once a week. Mm, I'm going to read my Bible every two weeks. Mm, I'm going to read my Bible every Sunday while he's reading the verses that I'm here for. Twelve times a year, maybe. So begin to think about this, these things that we can do to get righteousness. If this is where your mind is going, you've lost it. You cannot 
become righteous by the doing or not doing sin. Righteousness makes us crave things. Righteousness makes us crave being in his word. Righteousness makes us abstain from sin. But it is not the abstention of sin and the doing of things that makes us righteous. Paul, Paul writing in Philippians 3, in verse 9, said this. He says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Each of us, each of us, those of us who have submitted our hearts to Jesus, have been made righteous. We have been declared righteous before God. And the practice of righteousness comes from walking in the reality of who we are by spending time with Jesus. We spend time with him in prayer, the reading of his word, and the fellowship of the saints is transforming our hearts. And he is making us what he has already declared us to be. We can pursue sin, or we can pursue righteousness. You see, for the Christian, there is no cushioning, there is no middle way. It is sin or righteousness. Let me pray. Father, this morning we pray that you would God, do a a mighty work in our hearts that you would help us to be aware of our forgiveness. You'd help us to be aware of our borrowed righteousness. God, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. They find themselves uh, unable to overcome sin, that they would know that you have overcome sin just as you overcame death and you call them to walk in forgiveness, to receive the forgiveness that you extend through the cross. God, I pray for those in this room who for years have been chasing righteousness with legalism. They've been chasing righteousness with goodness. Help them to embrace righteousness and faith with Jesus. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.